Hey, everybody. On today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, Daryl and I are going to be reviewing the Seville Derby. We talk about some of the goals from Sevilla v. Batiste. We also answer a few of your listener questions. There's some good ones there. But first, I wanted to let you know that in a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure, cancer does not stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, the Big Virtual Climb, which is sponsored by AbbVie. This endeavor is an effort to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cancer cures, and also promote their first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. You can step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors. That's 1,762 steps, if you did not already know that. Uh, Inside or outside, on the stairs, on the road, on your treadmill, you can climb your way. You can join them on June 13th from coast to coast as they come together to climb, conquer, and cure. You can register at lls.org slash bigclimb. That's lls.org slash bigclimb. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's been watching La Liga. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello or hola. Hola. Yes, he has. The the Great Derby, a.k.a. El Gran Derby, a.k.a. the Seville Derby, yep. a.k.a. Sevilla Batiste. Sevilla Batiste. Uh-huh. It finished, spoiler alert, um, 2-0 to Sevilla. A result that was kind of never in doubt, right? Because for me, only one team looked sharp in this game. I mean, I think only one team looked somewhat sharp. I think for moments in this game, both of the teams definitely looked like they had had a bit of a layoff and it was sort of this getting back to it. It looked like one of our, like, the first amateur game of the season when we play and, like, balls going out of bounds, <laughs> some wayward long balls, some very tired legs. Uh, I always I joke with my wife about, like, when we run in the city and we always pray for the red lights. So it's like, oh, we got to stop now. Like, we can't run anymore. There was a few of those moments of, like, you kicked that ball out of, out of bounds so you could get a breath of fresh air, didn't you? Uh, but aside from that, I thought it was a very enjoyable game. Yeah, it was it was odd, right? There was mm-hmm. lots of good technique followed by a pass that went out of bounds. You know what I mean? It was a yes. weird, weird mix of these are definitely high level professional footballers, but they're not quite calibrated correctly. I mean, as long as we're talking about things that weren't quite calibrated correctly, I also have to go with the the fake fans, like the digital fans that they were trying to insert that occasionally would just glitch and not be there anymore. <laughs> so suddenly there's like this weird multicolor pixelated thing in the background, and then suddenly it's just empty seats for a while, and then it came back. That was that was a strange thing to sort of go for because I think they wanted the crowd atmosphere and it didn't quite come off. It was it's interesting to see various teams give things a try, mm-hmm. right? So at least at least there's that. The thing that worried me more genuinely on that digital display were what appeared to be tourism ads for Spain. Yee. It's far too soon for that, right? No yes. one's visiting Spain right now. No, I mean, I guess if you have like advertiser commitments and you've promised that we will have these up for the TV broadcast, yeah, I guess you kind of have to it. stick with that even if even if it's maybe not the best timing. But maybe add a little like parentheses of like after this is over <laughs> or like in a, in a couple months, right? I, Not it, right now. Some, some brands and their refusal to like adapt. My brother sent me a photo of a truck of Corona that's like relax with friends. And it's just like that is like a Corona beer. And it was just like you guys need to at least put like a mask on the beer bottle or something <laughs> to convey the severity of the situation. You got to change it up a bit. Yeah, I hope that they, uh, they adjust that and maybe they adjust some of the digital fans in the background as well. Before we get to analysing these goals, Taylor, Mm -hmm. in this 2-0 win for Sevilla, were there any players that stood out to you? Anyone who who you were sort of like... Because this is kind of one of those games that maybe we wouldn't have watched normally, but maybe Mm -hmm. we should do. Um, So I want to know what which players jumped off the screen for you. Yeah, I I really enjoyed watching Munir. It's been a while. I mean, Munir, the last time we really talked about him was like when he was with Barcelona and would he play for Spain? And and it's been a while. And so I felt like both of these teams had a lot of players that we have talked about at one point or another. I remember Sergio Canales used to be the player I would always sign in FIFA. He was one of my go-tos. So it's nice to catch up with some old friends, is I guess the way to put it. Mark Bartra as well. (laughs) But Munir was one that I thought was, was very fun to watch on the ball. And I thought his movement was really good. And he seemed to cause a lot of problems uh for Betis as well what about you um yeah Munir the same um except he did have that rusty moment where he got a, a flick on header I assume was from De Jong and I thought he was through and he tried like a chop cut back and and lost the ball that was the moment where I thought oh no one's no one's quite on their game yet are they no one's quite on their game um I was looking forward to watching Nabil Fakir I'm not sure he really produced any moments of magic that 
that made me jump out of my seat. He got it was more like I would, I would shuffle towards the edge of my seat in expectation, and then yeah, <laughs> he would get knocked around a bunch. Yep. Yeah, I was I was right there with you, and I think to the point where like thirty minutes in, they said like quiet day for him so far. And every time we did see him, it seemed like maybe that is indicative of the game plan that he seemed to be fouled or had a defender on him or wasn't really given much time to create because he did seem like he was sort of meant to be the transition outlet for Batiste when they dropped in. They sort of defended in a four four two, but four four one one in my mind. And I think maybe that was part of Sevilla's game plan is don't let him have time to facilitate counterattacks. There was one moment of magic in the lead-up to Sevilla's opening goal. Um, so th- they score the goal in the 56 minute from the penalty spot. They win it fr- um, from a corner kick where Bartra gets all over all over the back of... Um, of uh, who did De Young, he get the back of? De Young, thank mm-hmm. you very much. But in the build-up to that, to win the corner kick, there's that nice little flick from Oliver Torres. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? I do. Uh, he get. I'm not sure who the Batiste defenders are, but they get drawn into the corner where he is. He looks trapped, but he does the old drag back and then inside flick into the path of Je- Jesus Navas playing mm-hmm. right back. Yeah, <laughs> that um, was so, odd, right? Yeah, it, it was, but I think it's a fairly regular thing for Sevilla, and it's quite an impressive thing, right? Because then down that right side, they've got Navas, they've got Torres, and they've got Munir. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only do I like that flick, it also it reminds me of a tactical thing that you and I talked about before we started recording, where essentially the central midfielders would go wide. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a wrinkle that I'm not quite used to, but it, it felt like basically Sevilla's wingers, uh, Ocapos and Munir would, would sort of drop in and go wide. And then you'd have those central midfielders push up. And it's just a, a strange pattern that I'm not quite as familiar with. I think the usual one is those central midfielders sort of hold where they are. The wide players go wide, but stay high. And then the fullbacks are the ones that you use. And I felt like the sort of combination of, say, it is Navas and Munir on one side, the way you would have those kind of two clever, creative, pacey players, that can easily combine and interchange, I think, is another reason why Batiste were sort of struggling to deal with the attacking options that Sevilla had. Yeah, I think it sort of drags them all over the place. Um, yeah. In the build-up to that corner, it was Munir was actually on the left and Ocampus was on the right in the mm-hmm. build-up to winning that corner. I'm not sure if they flip-flopped back and forth, because I see in the, in the lineups Munir's listed on the right. He is. He is. I think that he stayed on the left for most of the game. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, yeah, because it was also Ocampos had that shot from the right as well. So yeah, Ocampos was definitely the, the right winger for the majority of the game. But he definitely, in the build-up to that winning that corner kick, he drifts infield and Torres and Navas push up. So I feel like Sevilla have all those types of rotations that will drag people out of position. Greg Berhalter would have loved it. Rotaciones. Rotaciones, yeah. Rotaciones. All right, from the corner kick, um, it is Munir with the first header, right? It's Munir who makes a sneaky run. Yes. To the far post. Um, I think it's um, Alenia. Uh, basically doesn't go with him. I, I would point fingers at Carlos Alenia here. Former Barcelona youth, pro- youth product teammates at some point. Maybe they were just too friendly. Um, <laughs> Munir sneaks away, heads it back across goal. Luke de Jong rises and Bartra rises to meet him. Let's, let's put it kindly that way. Yes. Penalty kick, says the referee. Yeah, and, and I thought that was, that's a very good way of describing it, Daryl, because there was much consternation, uh, during the game at halftime, even in the postgame about whether or not this should have been a penalty, uh, and, and was there sort of Bartra using the player as leverage. I felt like they were missing some points, but I'm wondering what you thought of this one. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've definitely got to the point where I will mute the TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't really matter who's on, because I like to just look at things, uh, for myself. And what I saw was Luke de Jong going straight up in the air. Yep. Um, and I believe Iglesias, the, the, uh, Betty striker was supposed to be marking him and had, just hadn't got there. So Bartra comes charging in from a couple of steps away and sort of diagonally goes at him and does end up with his arm and his shoulder on the back of de Jong and essentially sends de Jong off at a diagonal right. angle, right? Yeah. And you and cannot do thing. that. It's essentially a, it's a push in midair, right? Yeah. And it might look, you might argue that it's soft because it's only one touch, but a punch in the face is only one touch, right? <laughs> and a shove in the back in midair is only one touch. I think Bartra, like, he, he complained a lot, but um, he has to hold his hands up and say he was essentially too clumsy in the penalty area. And again, mm. I might even look at that and say that's, you know, first day back kind of a uh, first day back kind of move where normally the, um, the physical nudging and pushing and, you know, pulling and pushing is a little more subtle so that you can't 
get caught for it. And maybe Bartra just, again, hadn't calibrated correctly. <laughs> and it was just a little too obvious and a little too much. Yeah, I mean, I think a little too obvious is the key point there. Because as you said, he's coming in at an angle. And we see, you know, players jockey for position a lot. And as long as they're both going straight up, I think if Bartra were going straight up and had that sort of contact that he did have... I think it might have not been given, and I think that's where it is maybe like you could say it's a soft penalty if they had both gone straight up and then there had been that contact. But in this case, it's Barcher sort of coming in at an angle, making that contact. The referee is always going to give that because it's so clear in that moment that that player went straight up legally to try to win the ball. You came at an angle and went through them to try to win the ball. You can't do that. So even if it looks a little bit soft to me, it's a stone-cold penalty. So the penalty was one from the corner kick. Um, what, six minutes later, it's 2-0, yeah. another goal from a corner kick. This time, it's Fernando. I wondered where Fernando was go- had gone. Me um, too. So Fernando was the, the other Fernando mm-hmm. because they had Fernandinho at, at Manchester City all those years ago. Turns out he's at Sevilla. I, it's probably a big gap in my knowledge. I probably should have known that. He had a pretty impressive game yep. playing basically the Fernandinho role for yep. Sevilla. I want to say normally Eva Benega plays that role. Yep. I'm not 100% sure though. Haven't seen enough Sevilla um, in, in the last couple of years. But yeah, Fernando had mostly a good game. There was a lot of very smooth things. And then again, the occasional pass out of bounds. But he's not he's not alone in making the odd mistake. I have not looked it up, but I believe I'm correct in saying that Eva Benega left to go to Inter and then Eva returned. Benega came off the bench today. Right, I'm saying then he came back. So I, I think see. that's partially where it is, is that he's like returned, but I think we're getting the sort of veteran goes back to his former club and is a key player for them, but maybe not the key player. So I think he comes in for Ocampos in the 71st, and I'm going to guess that's more of a, you like take out an attacker, you have a more defense-minded central midfielder. But I think, like all I'm trying to say is that I think you haven't missed as much as you might think because there was a period <laughs> of time when he wasn't even there. There we go, there we go. But it's Fernando with the header yep. to, to make it 2-0. But almost as importantly, it's Ocampo yep. with the flick. Mm-hmm. I love this flick. Um, so it's just a, I'm not sure who's marking him, but it's just a couple steps to the right to come and meet it. And then a flick onto the, yep. like the far edge of the six yard box. Fernando does a nice job with a sort of stutter run to lose his marker and, and head it home. Anything else that you noticed from this corner? I, I mean, just trailer? that when we say a flick on, if you've missed it, it's worth noting it's with his foot. And to me, whenever you see a corner fair, flicked yeah. on with a foot, that, and, and it was, I think it was like a short corner that was then dropped back and then played in. And then there's that flick. There's, some semblance of master set piece theater. I'm not going to give it the full one because <laughs> there was definitely a little bit yeah. of flukiness to it, but just the sort of deliberate foot flick to get it up in the air and then to create the opportunity for what ends up being the goal. Uh, I, I really enjoy that. And it stood out to me for that reason, but I'm not going to go full master set piece theater. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and at the risk of sounding cliche, I genuinely think Sevilla were a step faster than mm. Batiste for most of this game, or a step ahead of Batiste is maybe the better way to phrase it for most of this game. And I think this goal is the is the absolute proof of this, right? But Batiste are mostly man marking, and on uh, like both touches for this goal, it's uh, it's that Acampo steps ahead of his mark and gets to it. Fernando stutters and then steps ahead of his mark to get to it. Sevilla were just that little bit sharper, and I think it really tells on set pieces. I want to focus on that for a minute because uh, we, we know Alexi Lalas is famed for his love of set pieces and stresses the importance yeah. of them. Do you think that, especially with this restart and from what we've seen from like the Bundesliga so far where you do have some fitness in- issues and some players coming back and maybe not being quite ready, do you, where, if you were a coach, if you were a La Liga coach, would you emphasize set pieces at the moment, both defending and attacking them? Because it does seem like an opportunity for if you kind of draw something up, rehearse it enough – Maybe if you catch your opponent when they are sort of just coming back, when there is a little bit of rust around, maybe you can catch them out uh, fairly easily. I mean, it's hard for me to say no after watching a game mm-hmm. where the team like creates two goals from corner kicks. Good right? point. <laughs> um, turns out Alexi Lalas was wrong, though, because Alexi Lalas says set pieces, set pieces, set pieces. And, only and this two. game, it was just set pieces, <laughs> set pieces. So two out of three ain't bad, though, right? Get it together, Alexi. Get it together. <laughs> Um, and it, but like you said, it, it wasn't just random, right? Like the uh, the first goal where Sevilla win the penalty kick, it starts with one of those, um, we call it the Welsh column or the Roman yep. column, where the players sort of gather in a line at the top of the box and then break in different directions. Uh, De Jong is originally, I think, in one of those columns, right? In, in that column. So yep. I think they they really do have rehearsed set pieces. And I think this, the second goal... 
I believe there is a short corner kick taken. So, and that's obviously yeah. deliberate and it allows everybody to, um, time their runs when they know the, the short corner, then mm. the cross is coming and it can throw off the opposition as well. So it's, it's all, to me, it's like another element of those rotations, right? Is that you do them on set pieces and mm. you create opportunities, especially if you're a step faster than the opposition. There we go. All right. So set pieces, set pieces, but not a third set piece quite yet. <laughs> not yet. Maybe next week. Maybe next week. <laughs> Anything else to add on this game, Taylor? I'm, I'm also really aware that most people will not have seen this game. I would recommend maybe just watching the goals if you yeah. haven't seen the entire game. Yeah, no, I mean, I would agree with that. I would just add that it's nice to have La Liga back. Uh, it's a league that we're going to be focusing more on, obviously, because we have the Bundesliga and La Liga right now. We'll have some other leagues very soon. Uh, but it, it's nice to have some variety. Uh, and I look forward to this weekend when we've got a lot more games in both La Liga and the Bundesliga. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And if you'd like to watch those games and Ooh. then the Premier League games next week, you could use today's sponsor to do so. Taylor, it's a returning champion. It is. It's Fubo. Fubo TV is back sponsoring the Total Soccer Show. Fubo TV is how I watched um, Sevilla Batiste today. Myself Big fan of Fubo TV well. right here and not just because they're paying me to say so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I sort of, I was on the call with them yesterday. I did point that out that like, that's how we watch both games. So, uh, we're happy for you to pay us to talk about you, but we also just like your services very much. And we do because <laughs> Fubo does make it very, very easy. And I appreciate that even just the sort of ease of navigating the menu that you can just go to sports and there's all your live sports that you're going to want to watch. And then you can just click on the one and you're good to go. You can easily DVR as well. And they make that very easy with the family plan, especially you get 500 hours of DVR so you can record all of the soccer that is soon to kick off. And I've been on that plan for more than a year, maybe two years, and I'm DVRing a lot of games every weekend. Only half full, Taylor. Only half full. I'm at like 250 right now. And yeah, I really, I really should go back and delete some games from last season. Uh, I think with the family plan, uh, three people can uh, watch at once or up to three people. Uh, and I think my tiny nephew recorded like all of the basketball at one point, And yet it still didn't fill up. <laughs> so even though there were like 35 basketball games recorded and maybe a few NFL games as well, uh, we still had plenty of room for all the games we needed to be able to cover. So speaking of the games we need to be able to yeah. cover, um, starting next week, right? Starting next Wednesday, June 17th, the Premier League is back. NBC Sports Network is included as part of Fubo. Mm -hmm. uh, but the family plan also includes uh, Be In yep. um, and Fox Sports, which the Premier League isn't quite back this weekend, but there's still plenty of games to watch, right? As we wait for the Premier League's return. So um, I've got the schedule in front of me, Taylor, some games yep. that are coming up um, this weekend. What catches your eye? Um, I'm excited La Liga is back. We don't get any like, like huge games. Like we've got, uh, Bilbao Atletico Madrid. We've got Mallorca Barcelona. We've got Real Madrid Ibar. The ones that really jump out, I will say, are in the Bundesliga where we've got some, uh, some pretty exciting ones all weekend starting on Friday. I'm excited for Hoffenheim Leipzig since Leipzig need to, to get it going a bit. And I want to see Tyler Adams destroy a billionaire. It's, <laughs> it's more, it's more about, um, the Champions League places than the title for Leipzig, yeah. right? But it's still, yeah, it's still exciting. You think, you think Tyler Adams can tackle so hard that the, the Hoffenheim. Dietmar Hoff? I think he can. <laughs> or Hoff, I'm, yeah. I'm going to call him major investor as opposed to owner <laughs> at, at this point. Think sure. some money or shake loose from his pockets. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have also, <laughs> I, I believe, the real Dirk Lassiker this weekend. Yes, Bayern versus uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. That yes, correct. the yep. real De Classica. Uh, uh -huh. Manuel Veit would be very happy that you said that. Uh, Manuel Veit, who just had knee surgery. So shouts to Manuel Veit. Uh, yeah, sh shouts Meniscus, to right? I think yeah. he's getting his meniscus taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we've got Bayer Gladbach. We've got, uh, Dusseldorf Dortmund. Uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to cheer on Lutz versus Dortmund or you want to root for Gio Reyna, either one uh, is oh. fine with me. I'm rooting for Gio Reyna to get more than 10 minutes. Okay. That's what I'm doing. I think yeah. that's a fair thing to root for. Yeah, that's so, what I want. <laughs> so uh, you can watch all of those games because, as we said, the, the family plan especially includes BNTUDN, Fox Sports, CBS, Fox, NBC, NBC Sports. Uh, and uh, you can check out that offer by going to fubo.tv slash TSS with the Premier League's comeback. Fubo TV will not disappoint. You can stay updated on your favorite leagues as well as local broadcast news by going to fubo.tv slash TSS today and start your free seven-day trial. You will not regret it. <laughs> that's fubo.tv slash tss the link will be in the show notes thank you to fubo for coming back and sponsoring the total soccer show things are almost feeling back to normal taylor 
<laughs> yes. As soon as the artificial fans stop glitching, I'll feel even more back to normal. <laughs> I think we should go full Westworld. We get animatronic uh, fans in there, but then they turn on us and it becomes a whole thing. Uh, I mean, I'd, I would watch that, and it would be better than the Westworld that was on HBO. <laughs> uh, all right, so we've talked about La Liga a bit. We talked about the game from today. Shall we answer some listener questions next? Yes, more listener questions. First up, we have a question from Robert Cordova. Mm-hmm. Robert Cordova wants to know, what is the Total Soccer Show's opinion? So he's come to the right people for this. Mm-hmm. What is the Total Soccer Show's opinion on how since Cristiano Ronaldo left Manchester United in 2009, every player wearing the number seven hasn't performed well? And bonus question, who would Taylor like to see wear it in the future? Shall we start by maybe spelling out for people why the number seven shirt at Manchester United genuinely is important? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the history of it all. Uh, it obviously goes back to the original numberings where seven and 11 tend to be your wide players. And seven and 11 are fairly important numbers for Manchester United. But seven, especially if you look at it historically, uh, before Ronaldo, you had David Beckham, Eric Cantona, Brian Robson, George Best, Dennis Law, Billy Meredith, uh, to name just a few. So it's a very historically significant shirt. And it tends to be a player who scores goals, is creative, but it is sort of also like a media darling. People tend to pay attention to it tends to be it's, a sort of head-turning number. Yeah, it's usually the talisman of the team. And yeah. I would I would even argue that um, in the run up until it finished with Ronaldo, definitely best bef- like before was the big, big name that wore number seven, right? The icon. But then in the 80s through the 2000s, you had basically in a row, Brian Robson, Eric Cantona, David Beckham, Cristiano Ronaldo. You had the absolute talisman of the team wearing the number seven for Manchester United for like 20 plus years, right? It was just an unbroken, an unbroken thing. Until Ronaldo left. Yeah. Until Ronaldo, Ronaldo left. And it's never been quite the same. Have you seen no. the list of the players to wear it since? Oh, I have I have that list. I also have, do you know the number of goals those players have scored? 20? 15. Oh, that's <laughs> That close. was as of June 2019. It may have changed, except that Alexis Sanchez is the current wearer of number seven, and he doesn't even play for the team right now. Yeah, if you read a Manchester United squad list right now, it goes 1, 2, yeah. 3, 4, 5, 6, 8. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no seven, no eleven, which I find very interesting. Again, given the significance yeah. of number eleven, I'm not. I'm not sure the reason for that. All right, so I want to quickly go through the history of sevens mm-hmm. at Man United um, since Cristiano Ronaldo's departure. Next up was Michael Owen, who yeah. arguably is the most successful number seven wearer at Manchester United since Cristiano Ronaldo. I find it fascinating because Owen is not a seven, right? He's absolutely not anywhere else he's been. He's He's been essentially a number nine, but he's worn number 10. That was his number. And I want to say that was him joining Man United and getting the seven shirt was maybe part of the the whole branding exercise and almost Absolutely. like a, an honor to Michael Owen to say, we will give you this special Manchester United shirt, even though you're just a goal poacher with dodgy knees. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's certainly part of it. I would also add that like, it is it is the significance of seven we've already talked about is it's a very important number to the club. But I think you cannot overlook the person who wore it last that had that success. And it's Ronaldo. And it's like it sort of is like if you're replacing a big player, it's like trying to like when uh, LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami. And it's like we got to replace that number. It's like, well, maybe you need to replace the person. And I think that sort yeah. of is it is that like Michael Owen, I think, got it. Sort of as a way to say, like, ah, we got Michael Owen, though. You know his name, don't you? That was at a time when they were sort of, I think, looking to show that they could continue to exist without Ronaldo. And I think if you look at some of the people who've worn it, it's pretty clear to me that they're trying to find the next Ronaldo that everybody's going to be super hyped about. I would agree with that on everyone post-Michael Owen, because I feel like Owen was kind of successful right like he because his role really was like not to always be a starter just to mostly come off the bench and be useful here and there and that's basically what he did for two or three years right he was a useful squad player for Alex Ferguson and he got his sort of only his only league title I believe in his in his spell at Manchester United that is true but a a squad player wears 17 not seven that's that's the strange thing it's like yeah he has success you're absolutely right but it still is a like yeah it's success but maybe not in the way that they intended for that jersey and after that, it's essentially a series of, I think Valencia has it once or twice, right? He has but it after for that, one se- season, yeah. One season. It's a series of big name signings who were kind of meant to be that talented yep. 
talismanic player. It's Angel Di Maria, one season and out. It's Memphis Depay, one and a half seasons yep. and out. Um, Antonio Valencia, in and out, like, you know, good sort of Manchester United uh, servant, basically. Mm-hmm. And then it's Alexis Sanchez right at the end. I thought Valen- that- Valencia is 2012 to 2014. So it was, okay, it so was Owen Valencia yeah. and then Di Maria, Memphis, Sanchez. All right, but the the big, big news is yeah. the Di Maria, Depay, Alexis Sanchez attempts exactly. to be yeah. the Manchester United number seven, and none of them worked out. So maybe no. let's focus on those three. Why did sure. none of them work out? Angel Di Maria, most expensive signing by a British club at the time uh, Louis van Gaal signed him from Real Madrid. What went wrong mm. with Angel Di Maria? I mean, what we know now is that he he never wanted to move there in the first place. <laughs> that his wife that was right? like, please anywhere but Manchester. Yes, uh, they, they they didn't really like the the club itself, I believe. But then he also did not want to live in in like the north of England, um, especially moving from Madrid. Uh, and so there was always sort of that frustration, I believe. And then there was the idea that Angel Di Maria under Louis Van Hall ends up playing as more like a central midfielder, which is not what he wanted to do, and he had some issues with that. And by all accounts, he never really was happy to be at Manchester United. And then the ensuing season made him even less so. I mean, it's a big deal to sign somebody for that amount of money uh, and then for to have them move on in a couple seasons. But yeah. for it to be one season really shows how poorly everything went down. And I think a lot of that is because uh, Van Hal and Di Maria did not get along at all. Up next, because Di Maria moves on to Paris, right? Up next is Memphis or Memphis Depay. He had some moments, right, after he joined from, I want to say, PSV. Yeah. Had some moments on the wing, looked Ronaldo-ish. Uh, but I, I would not necessarily want to be a winger for Louis van Gaal. Because no. you're sort of, from what I understand, you're very much told what to do and when to do it. And there's not too much room for expression. Knowing what we know now about Louis van Gaal and obviously the way the situation went out, Memphis Depay is almost the worst player for a Louis van Gaal system because you're bringing him in to be like like fast but very clever on the ball and try to take people on and beat them 1v1. And what we know now from our research, I maybe should have known then, is that Louis van Gaal does not like that. He does not like people who are going 1v1. He finds that selfish, but more importantly, yeah. he finds that to be... Uh, not inconsistent, but like the not efficient way. He finds it to be inefficient in how you attack. And I think for Memphis to try to change all of that to be a system player was a lot to ask in that moment. And I think Van Hall had so many other issues that he didn't really have the time to figure out how to make that happen. And that's why we continue to see Memphis have success with Leon and why I think he is still a sort of in-demand player or potentially yeah. could be if and when the transfer market reopens. But it's why say- maybe it didn't work with United. I want to say he's captain of Leon, and I'm really confident that he's a regular in the, the oh, Netherlands yeah. starting 11. That's a really mm-hmm. talented Dutch team right now, and Depay is very much part of the starting 11. He's a player that, like, if he joined Manchester United now, he improves the team. I'm really, really confident of that. Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. Except that I would have said the same thing of Alexis Sanchez, and that has not been the case with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Do you have ideas as to why that didn't work, aside from he was tired and maybe a little bit older? I mean, I think it's mostly that, right? And I think United, my memory of this is they signed him for free in a sort of swap deal with Enric Mkhitaryan. Is that right? They didn't pay any transfer fee because he was near the end of his contract at Arsenal. What Arsenal got in return was Enric Mkhitaryan. And what Manchester United got was a £500,000 a week winger who I think wasn't well suited to playing for Jose Mourinho for for one thing and definitely was on the downslope of his career. Right. So there's I think there's there's two parts to it is that Alexis wasn't the player that he was and he wasn't suited to playing for Jose Mourinho. And I think on both in both cases, Alexis just wanted to go and play for a big, big team because I think he was frustrated with not winning anything for Arsenal for a a good many years because it was under Wenger still. Right. When Mm -hmm. this happened. Um, And then Manchester United wanted a splashy signing. It was definitely in this period where United was still trying to prove they're a big team. Right. So I think grabbing a name like Alexis um, and paying him all that money was like a bit of a muscle flex, it felt like to me. Um, at the time and then he kind of made sense to give him the seven shirt as well right to be this talismanic um, attacking player that the crowd would love um, and none of those things worked out and they're literally still paying for the mistake today they certainly are I do uh, wonder if Robin Van Persie 
like sort of indirectly plays a role here because Robin Van Persie, they bring in uh, when he has that one year remaining. Uh, he comes in, he wins the the last title with Sir Alex Ferguson. And I wonder if at Manchester United, there was some thought of, well, Van Persie came in and he had the best se- season and he won the title. So it yeah. stands to reason that Alexis Sanchez, if he comes in, will have this kind of resurgence and he'll be even better than he was. So maybe there were some red flags they were willing to overlook to not have Mkhitaryan on the books and to potentially have a resurgent Alexis Sanchez. And now here we are. <laughs> what about to the second part of Robert's mm-hmm. question? Um, who would Taylor like to see wear the number seven in the future? We don't see Alexis coming back and wearing it, right? So the, there no. will be a next person to wear number seven. Who do you, who would you like to see it be? I mean, it could be Alexis. That would be very strange. Uh, but I have heard those rumblings of like, it'll be like a new signing. And I'm not happy about that. Uh, so assuming it's not him, uh, Anthony Martial is currently the number nine. Marcus Rashford is currently the number 10. Those would be two nominees, Rashford especially. But they're already in some good numbers. Uh, Bruno would be maybe the other one, but he's a more central midfielder. So I am going with Mason Greenwood, who is currently number 26. So you you didn't look outside of the squad to think who it might be? Because I know a guy that I think wears number seven right now and Manchester United have been heavily linked with. I'm not sure I want him right now. (laughs) So it's Jadon Sancho is who I'm talking about if listeners didn't pick up. I think if Man United go wild and spend 100 million on Jadon Sancho, nothing wrong with giving him the seven shirt. No. Where in researching this, though... I, I do. It feels like the biggest thing is that basically it's Manchester United trying to consistently, they're consistently trying to make a statement. They're consistently trying to bring in this big name, goal scoring, attacking, creative player who's going to fill the shoes of Ronaldo. And as, and like, as we know, when you're trying to bring in a big player to score goals, it can hit, but oftentimes it cannot hit because it's a different system. It's a different style. It's a different approach. And I, I guess I'm sort of at speaking very much as a Manchester United fan, sort of over the idea of let's spend 150 million or whatever to bring in a player who could be the number seven, but could just as easily be playing for Inter Milan in a season and a half. Whereas Mason Greenwood has been there, I think will end up being used as that sort of left winger. And that's where my head goes with it. But you're right that Jaden Sancho does feel like he is the heir apparent. And if we don't see that, like anybody take up the number seven shirt anytime soon, then maybe we have our answer right there that they're holding it for Jaden Sancho. I mean, at the very least, if you sign Jaden Sancho, with all due respect to Danny James, it's a massive, massive upgrade on Daniel James, in my opinion. I think Jaden Sancho is a far superior player. Oh, you think? Maybe, but maybe <laughs> yeah. there is yeah. just more consistent, like delivery, more consistent in I mean, front of did, goal. He did score those three goals at the very beginning of the season. Yeah. I mean, Daniel James is basically fast, but is like really still not quite, um, mm-hmm. up, up to par in terms of his delivery or his goal or his goal scoring. That's my opinion, right? But there's, there's a great player there, but maybe in a few more years. Jaden Sancho, Daniel, I Daniel think James is a kid from Mighty Ducks too who can't stop. He's really, really <laughs> fast, but that's pretty much all he brings. Whereas Jaden Sancho is fully in control of his body, right? Uh, I um, mean, that's an ironic choice of words given that he came back from the break, maybe looking a little bit heavy. Oh, but he's already, he's already getting better, right? He's already looking yeah. a little bit better. Um, all right, but how about this for a proposal then? Sure. I, I still think if you take the number, number seven thing out of the equation, Jaden Sancho really is the type of player that Manchester United need, not in terms of profile, but in terms of what they need to add to their attack. I think Man United might be smart to recognize that the number seven carries so much weight and maybe keep it in reserve until someone earns it. So yeah. give Jaden Sancho not the number seven, maybe give him that 11 shirt um, or, you know, don't give it Mason Greenwood just yet. Wait till someone is really ready to step up and be Manchester United's number seven. And then it's a special moment when, you know, the new squad numbers come in uh, and for the next season, maybe it's the 2021-22 season and somebody gets it who's definitely earned it. I I am fully in favor of that plan because I think anytime you're trying to replace a player in a bunch of different categories, you're sort of going to end up lying to yourself about like, well, he does that too. That'll be fine. And then if you're relying on that, things are going to go south pretty quickly. Yeah. And because they've got to be aware of the weight that that shirt carries, right? I mean, they should be aware of a lot of things. Whether or not anybody at Manchester United is is, remains to be seen. (laughs) All right. I consider that question answered. As do I. All right. Next question comes from Corey Walters. Uh, Corey Walters wants to know, why are some European men's leagues returning, but not women's leagues? I have two bullet point answers to the answers for this that we can go into in depth, and they are money and, generally speaking, a lack of adequate planning from the governing FA. I think the main thing is money in the form of broadcast deals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, like it's it's no secret, and I don't even think it's worth uh, clubs or leagues pretending otherwise that the reason the Premier League and the Bundesliga and other leagues are in such a rush to get back 
is that they signed really big broadcast deals. And if they don't play games that can be televised, they don't get that money, right? And so, the, and then they are in trouble when they don't get that money. That's why the Bundesliga was very keen to come back and the Premier League was so keen to come back and La Liga and so on. And I, as I understand it, with something like, uh, so the equivalent to the Premier League, Premier League is the FA Women's Super League in England, mm-hmm. right? The FA WSL. They have broadcast deals with BT Sport and with the BBC. Those broadcast deals were for no money, right? They were sort of trial balloons, kind of. And then they were hoping the next deal, they'd be able to get a fee uh, for the broadcast rights. So right now, if you're the FA WSL, you're not losing money by not playing games. You don't have like a, a deal that you've signed and money that was coming that you've already spent somewhere uh, that you need to play a game to get on television to make it happen. So it actually makes sense to just play it really safe, be extra cautious um, and and don't play the games. Well, I think where I go with it is I agree with everything you said, except that you do have some instances like in Germany with the DFB and the DFL where they've agreed to help foot some of the bill to get lower leagues back underway as well as the women's league. So you could have some revenue sharing. You could have them sort of spreading the wealth a little bit. That is not the case in, say, England, where the FA were basically like, if you all think you can do these two things, then you're welcome to resume play, but did not necessarily then say, and we'll help make that happen and we'll find a way to make it happen. Right, because it's costly to put yeah. games on, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you need that money to come from somewhere. Otherwise, you're just playing for, um, you're losing money basically to to play games. Yeah. I don't know the situation with the Frauen Bundesliga. I don't mm-hmm. know if if the TV deal is for good money or or not. So I'd be I interested. Don't... I probably should have researched for this question why the Frauen Bundesliga is the league that's come back. Uh, as I said, it's because I think the league is ad, like is allocating money to them. As oh, the, so they're like, not losing money if they play. No, exactly. Yeah, I think the DFB yeah. and the DFL are like asking teams or have basically forced clubs to give up some percentage of money to then be redistributed to leagues who need it, like the women's league, which is why they are, I believe, resuming uh, fairly soon. There uh, we so that go. was that was one part of it. But the a- adequate planning is the other one. Uh, did you have more you wanted to say about the money yeah, aspect? The, yeah, one thing I want to say about the money aspect is sure. the NWSL is obviously coming back in Utah mm-hmm. with the Challenge Cup. NWSL is a league with a TV deal, right? They signed mm-hmm. that TV deal with um, CBS All Access and then the international rights are with, I believe, Twitch. Um, I went through so many reports. I cannot find the number. Like, there's not a specific number of what CBS All Access paid to get the rights to the NWSL. But there were lots of references to a marketing agency, I believe it was called Octagon, negotiating the contract. So I'm pretty confident that the NWSL got money for their CBS All Access deal, right. which makes it like it makes it worthwhile to return to play and get some of that broadcast money. Yeah, and, and and this is me potentially speaking very much out of ignorance, but I always go back to that NHL lockout where they had the entire season and it did end up costing the NHL like a massive amount of popularity for a very long time. And I think maybe there is with the NWSL a realization that we are like the, I would argue, the strongest uh, women's league in the world. And so maybe there's an, an element there of like, we want to stay in business. We cannot afford to take a season off or to yeah. sort of not have people in play because players need the money, players need the games, but also we need the visibility and there's the momentum still of the 2019 world cup and the success and the popularity so yeah keep it rolling keep it rolling i'm looking forward to the challenge cup for that reason i hope things uh start to look a little better in utah in terms of coronavirus Mm -hmm. cases because they're not looking good right now they are not. They are not. But they're not looking good in Florida either. So, yeah, it all bounces out. Uh, I did, speaking of maybe not, like, planning things out the best, uh, I did want to point out, there's a good article from uh, Suzanne Rack, spelled with a W, W-R-A-C-K, in The Guardian. Um, and an anecdote she pointed out uh, was about how basically the players, or the article itself is about the players also not necessarily wanting to come back and sort of being in a position where now they're sort of okay with the season being cancelled. The anecdote that I thought was particularly revealing was about Bunny Shaw. Do you remember Bunny Shaw from yeah. University of Tennessee? Yep. Now at Bordeaux. Uh, here's the quote for you. Bunny Shaw is in Jamaica. The situation there is good, but they are being careful. Bunny is in quarantine. A week ago, the club wanted her to return. That means we had to find a flight that would leave Jamaica, which is almost impossible. When she arrived in France, she would have had to quarantine for two weeks when she was done with quarantine. If for any reason France were to cancel the league, which they then did, she would have had to return to Jamaica and quarantine again. So basically her club were asking her to quarantine for another month on the off chance that she might be able to play. And the point that this agent was making was, is that a thing that anybody in the French league would be willing to do? To go quarantine somewhere else on the off chance that something happens, but then be sent back to quarantine again if it doesn't. And there is that sort of uncertainty 
at, at like an individual club level that I think is making it hard for the players to kind of understand a unified message for what the plan overall is. And if you're hearing a bunch of stuff, I guess it's easier just to think, let's just shut it down until we're all on the same page. Yeah, I, I get it. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I would have argued for a bunny show exception. Yes, to all, to all coronavirus rules. Yeah, <laughs> she 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 jumps too high; it can't get her up there. <laughs> there should be some uh, some WHO um, guidelines of how high the coronavirus can jump. Yeah, I think there should be, and I <laughs> yeah. think the answer is not as high as her. So there we go. Not the I think the guideline is not very high if Mark Bartra puts in an, an elbow across your back at a diagonal <laughs> angle. Precisely. <laughs> oh, one one thing worth noting from the FAWSL, we don't talk about mm-hmm. that league very often, right? They because they made the decision to to cancel, um, this was really interesting. Manchester City were top of the league. Chelsea yeah. had a game in hand. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Chelsea were given the league title on points per game, because they had like earned more points per game in their 15 games than Man City had in their 16 games. Right. So there was definitely a weird situation there, but everybody was just willing to, uh, willing to, uh, to, I guess Man City were willing to take, take the loss on that. But then we also have a situation which I think Liverpool are bottom of the table and they, they're sort of a lack of desire to relegate Liverpool uh, right now at least. And so then there was some talk of maybe we'll just make the uh, WSL even bigger. Uh, are there, was it, is it the EWSL? What would you go with there? It's the FAWSL, the FA, FA Women's Super League. Uh, there's some talk then of like, should we expand it? But then they don't really want to just artificially inflate the numbers or have it be too much too soon. So how they deal with the bottom of the table is equally as confusing as how they dealt with the top. All right, then. The complications of soccer mm-hmm. in coronavirus world. We really mm-hmm. are focusing on the leagues that are coming back because we're all excited about them. Yep. But there's all kinds of leagues that are shutting down, right? Uh, the third division in England, um, EFL League One, they decided to just end the table where it was, right? Just that's it. We're done. We're not going to do, not going to do anything else. It's an anticlimactic um, episode or ending to the Sunderland to season we're not going to get. Right. Uh, probably, probably for the best now, right? Yeah, I'm not sure yes. that would have been a great. Uh, I'm not sure that would have been a great episode. Yeah, yeah, uh, men in rooms staring at numbers on a screen. Yeah, probably not. And then, and then it just gets announced that we're not <laughs> going to do anything else. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are going to do something I guess else. A more positive ending for for Sunderland than they're used to. <laughs> it's better than usual. It's better yeah. than usual. Um, we have two more questions to go, we Taylor. Do. But first, today's show is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are becoming longtime sponsors, sponsors mm-hmm. of the Total Soccer Show. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12. They're super consumable. They're easy to take on the go. If you listen to yesterday's show, Taylor, the Benny Farhaber interview, I had the tub with me. I gave it a little shake at this point in the ad. <laughs> did, did you have any while you were talking to Benny? I didn't. I just happened to have it in the room. Would you like, do you, would it help you in an interview? Do you think? Does it like lighten you up at all? Does it make you more focused on what the person is saying? Do you stay locked into the conversation? Yeah. I mean, I told you my experience with CBD is it doesn't make me any more mm-hmm. relaxed, but it does make me more focused. Right. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to risk taking CBD and upsetting the regular balance that I have. That's especially not, fair. especially not with a former US men's national team World Cup player. Oh no. You yeah, think that could have gone poorly? Yeah. Just in case, just in case things went a little differently. The only time that we have ever recorded something in which we were not of like, like officially not of sound mind was when we did the Drunk Wikipedia game with Albert, a show that I think we never, ever aired. No, uh, we didn't. But drunk would be very different than CBD because you don't have the slurring and all that comes with drinking. Instead, you just have a thing that can help you uh, relax, decompress, feel more composed or feel more focused if you're Daryl Grove and myself. It does help <laughs> with the research. It helps me kind of drill into little topics. Although then when Daryl asks if I'm ready to record and I say, no, I've been... I don't know, like into the evolution of wingbacks over the last 20 years in Italy when we're talking about, say, the Premier League and a game that happened that day. I think that's where I get into trouble. Warning, CBD can lead you down Wikipedia holes. This is correct. Um, but if you if you want to go down that Wikipedia hole or if you just want to try CBD, uh, you can get 25% off your first order with the code SOCCER at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com and enter code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what product might be best for you. Go to sundayscaries.com and use the code SOCCER. Mm-hmm. All right, Taylor, two more questions. Two yep. more questions. Next one comes from Adam Sportsman, who has a great name, first of all. 
Adam asks, what fringe U.S. men's national Should team... Should be sports person, but whatever. It's <laughs> what fringe U.S. men's national team veterans would you be comfortable calling in if an injury crisis hits right before World Cup qualifying? And the examples Adam gives us are maybe Fabian Johnson or Dax McCarthy. So if so, we do have a young team under Greg Berhalter, right? But Adam's saying if there was an injury crisis, what fringe U.S. men's national team veterans would you be comfortable calling in for World Cup qualifying? No. Really? No. Just no one. <laughs> Is that a good enough answer? I mean, um, it's, it's, it's challenging because I think like with the way the team has evolved after Kuva under Dave Sarakin, but then into Greg Berhalter, we have sort of moved away from so many of those veterans. Like there's a few that are still involved, but for the most part, we've sort of moved on that now it feels much more the case that if we were in an injury crisis, it would be young players being called in to get an opportunity as opposed to some of those players who maybe don't quite fit with what Berhalter wants and thus haven't been included already. Okay, so let's go through the list of possible players sure. then that um, Adam might be referring to, and then we'll weigh up whether we would rather include them or I guess it would be a younger player farther down the current roster, right? Mm. And I'm really looking at that, like that U23 uh, CONCACAF Olympic qualifying roster that was called up with guys like Brendan Aronson and yep. uh, Richie Ledesma and guys like that on there. Um, okay, let's take the first one. Fabian Johnson. I think I would be comfortable with Fabian Johnson coming in and playing left back or right back um, in World Cup qualifying? I think if we're looking at this in a vacuum, then yeah, I'm with you. That's probably the only one, except that from the present situation, he has been injured. We haven't seen him play for Gladbach. We know he's leaving at the end of the season. So the uncertainty there is where I would have some concerns, but that is from a like right now standpoint. Maybe if he were back and playing and fully fit, I would not have those uh, same concerns. He has made appearances for Gladbach since the uh, Bundesliga started up again. I do know that because I've definitely seen him play, but he hasn't been a regular starter for sure for Gladbach. He's also, his contract expires and he's not getting another one, right? So we could be talking about Fabian Johnson, MLS player um, at that point. You never know. Yep. You never know. Fabian Johnson, for me, I think is top of the list because he's not that, that old. And he's also um, a pretty high caliber player, in my opinion. So if fit, Fabian Johnson tops the list for me of... uh, players to come in at fullback or maybe even to play on the wing if that's where we would end up using him. Um, Adam's other example was Dax McCarty. I haven't seen Dax McCarty play this season in the first two or three mm-hmm. MLS games. I imagine he would actually be a, a good character, a good personality to come in and do a job in central midfield. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I have to, uh, go back to say Fabian Jutta has not played for Gladbach since the season. Sure. Resumed. Not yes. at all. I thought mm-hmm. I'd seen him come off the bench and play for Gladbach. Mm, unless it was a DFB Pokal game. He has not no. played in the league since February. Oh, I'm wrong then. I thought, I definitely thought I'd seen him. Never mind. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that, uh, <laughs> that throws it again. Uh, so Dax McCarty, yeah, I'm with you though, that we haven't seen him. We don't really know how he is in terms of fitness. Again, this is from a like right now standpoint yeah. that if MLS well, let's, resumes, let's he assume everyone's, fit. yeah, let's assume everyone's fit. Let's at least okay. do that. Otherwise we're going to be saying that for every single player, right? True. Given coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dax McCarty in his mid thirties, Lots of U.S. national team experience, never been to a World Cup. Um, I I think he could sort of not shine, but at least fill in and say like one of those number eight roles for Greg Berhalter. He could do the Christian Roldan role, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are we assuming then that, that that's like if Weston McKinney were hurt and Christian Roldan were hurt, maybe then we're looking yeah, at Dax McCarty? Just crisis. Absolute midfield crisis. Or even if it's just Dax McCarty filling out a 23-man squad, right? And... Uh, like maybe McKenney is still starting somewhere, mm-hmm. but Roldan and a few others are injured and Dwayne Holmes is injured. Dax McCarthy on the roster. I have some, I have some other questions for you then about some of these guys. Like is Alfredo Morales one of these players? I don't think of him as a veteran. For one, he hasn't played okay. enough for the national team and he's not even mm-hmm. that, that old. So for me, no. What about Julian Green? Again, not a veteran, not enough caps, not, not old enough. So where, um, where are you putting the number of caps? I mean, I'm expecting like 20, 20 caps or so. And I'm expecting him to be 30 plus and to have been around national teams um, in the past. So like Sasha Cleston, I think would be a good, another good example of someone who's definitely a veteran, definitely has been around the national team, but he's definitely very much on the fringe right now and not expecting a call up. Um, but if we were in an absolute crisis, I could see Sasha Cleston again coming in and playing like maybe the number 10 role uh, for Greg Berhalter. 
See, here's the thing. I, I think Julian Green has more caps than Dax McCarty at this point. So that's right, but where he's, I get he's well under 30, right? Okay. So, right, he's not so a you're talking about age-wise. Okay, cool, yeah. cool, cool. Now I'm with you. Okay, cool. All right, yeah. So then that does cross off a few more because, like, Bobby Wood is still not at that 30-year-old mark. But mm-hmm. I, he is definitely very much on the fringes. But he's not one I'm too eager to call back, at least not yet. So that that is kind of where I am. Like, Jorge Viafania is another possibility. We do have a dearth of, of left-backs. Yeah. So maybe Jorge Viafania. But that's another one where... I haven't seen him in a very long time, so I wouldn't mind getting a few more games from him before I felt comfortable calling him in, even in emergency. Demarcus Beasley was actually one that was on my list of like, if we needed a like left back and a veteran, even though he's retired, you never know. Maybe he's still in shape. Let's get him in there and see what happens. Properly retired at the end of 2019. Oh, I know. He would, he would have to go on a few jugs if we were going to get Demarcus Beasley back in. I I personally, I'd be willing to risk like Anthony Robinson at left back. Um, if we got, if we mm-hmm. got to that stage, maybe not Chris Gloucester because he hasn't played any any first team football yet. Yeah, I guess that that would be the key, right? If it was like it's a World Cup qualifier, and do you play Chris Gloucester, who has never played a first team game, but everyone's really excited about, or would you go with Jorge Villafania? I would go with Chris Gloucester. You really would. That is I a real so. roll of the dice. It is. No, nah, I think you're right. Maybe I would go Viafania. I think because Viafania, like, yes, he's involved in Kuva and everything else, but it's a bit harsh to blame that entire thing on him, uh, nor would I say that that's even a logical thing to do. So, yeah, I think I might be okay with Jorge Viafania on that depth chart a little bit, uh, a little bit of the ways back. All right. How about this one then? Still not retired, still going strong. Chris Wondolowski, center forward. Mm. This is, we've got no Josie, no Giassi, uh, no Josh Sargent. I guess Jesus Ferreira might be the the alternative. What it's Wondolowski or Ferreira? Ibobase. Ibobase yeah. could be in that chat as well. And I think that is one where I would go younger. I might even yeah, I would look at Jesus Ferreira again. You could even like try Timo- Timothy Weah if he were back to full fitness. Uh I think I would go younger over Chris Wondolowski. No disrespect to to Wondolowski who's been yeah. a a a faithful servant to club and country. I guess there are enough strikers in the youthful depth depth chart that have some first team minutes that we could turn to them, right? Yeah, so yeah, I think that's fair. I think Chris Wondolowski can rest easy. He can rest easy. We've avoided Jeff Cameron. Uh, Would you have Jeff Cameron in that conversation? Ooh. In this this political moment, it's tough. I think I'd prefer Mm -hmm. Omar Gonzalez or I'd prefer Matt Beasler. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Or I'd prefer to look to our... Like guys yeah. who aren't around the squad much, but mm-hmm. I think could play like Eric Palmer Brown or Mark yeah. McKenzie yep. or Justin Glad. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think I feel, we've got the depth there. I feel weird about Jeff Cameron, basically. Yeah, it's basically like if the 15 center backs ahead of him all get injured, then I guess so. But there is yeah. enough depth there that I think we've got young players and veteran players and medium players as well. <laughs> I want to I throw one more at you. Um, the Sasha Clayton sure. one I mentioned Mm-hmm. I think that's a good shout because he's definitely a veteran, definitely played a lot for the national team. And he's with LA Galaxy right now. I think he could do a job, but I still think, even though I'm pro Sasha Cleston, that I'd much rather gamble on like Richie Ledesma or Brandon Aronson playing yeah. uh, that attacking midfield position, even in a sort of really important World Cup game. And wasn't there also the kind of idea that Sasha Kleshton, his numbers look slightly better because he was like trying sort of Hollywood passes. He was the one who was the fulcrum of the attack for Red Bulls. So it, it was sort of okay if he I mean, had yeah, some that wayward was the, passes. That was the knock against the number of assists he would rack up for yeah. the Red Bulls. But that doesn't mean he's a bad player, right? It just meant that like his statistics were inflated. You oh. can still spot a really talented um, attacking midfielder. Yeah, I just mean that if 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 Greg Berhalter is prioritizing ball retention and not like trying risky passes and thus coughing up possession, that would be my only hesitation there. But I imagine Kleshman is good enough and wise enough to yeah. adjust accordingly. I mean, I would say those were his instructions when he played for Red Bulls. That's not mm-hmm. Sasha Kleston's like, it's not a, like a habit that he always has to try risky passes too much, right? It's just the thing that he was told to do at Red Bulls. Um, so would- it's not a failing of Sasha. It's a failing of the, the Red Bull system. Okay. All right. You, so you're saying the Red Bull system is failing. The failing I, Red Bull system. I mean, it hasn't won an MLS Cup. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> shall we move on before I get myself in any more trouble? Um, we'll talk about uh, Miroslav Klose. This is sure. Carter Baumgartner's question. How did Miroslav Klose become the men's World Cup all-time leading goal scorer? The answer is he scored the most goals, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> but Carter notes, Miroslav Klose is not one of the superstar players or even prolific goal scorers for his club that you would expect to have 16 men's World Cup goals. 
I mm. slightly disagree with the premise, but I think it's an interesting idea to look at how Miroslav Klose... Uh, I, I think at the very least, I agree with Carter that like the number two World Cup all-time goal scorer is Ronaldo, original yeah. Ronaldo, who is maybe more like the type of player you would expect to be the all-time World Cup leading goal scorer. Yes. Uh, I will say if you look at the goals that Klose has scored, uh, which I did go back and watch, uh, they are almost all with his head, except for a few that are tap-ins from inside the six-yard box. I think I saw one that was not inside the six-yard box <laughs> in, in all of those goals. And I think that tells you right there why he was maybe quite so clinical. I also, I think this is down to the number of games played, right? Because mm-hmm. Miroslav Klose went to four World Cups, 2002, mm-hmm. 2006, 2010, 2014. Here's what's really important, I think, Taylor. In all four of those World Cups, even though Germany only won one of them, they played all seven games in every single World Cup because they made at least the semifinals and had a third place oh, game instead of a final. Is. So there are 28 games available here for Miroslav Klose mm-hmm. to score those 16 goals in. He didn't play in every single game, obviously. He even got sent off once, right? So he was suspended. Mm-hmm. But there were, there were a lot of games available to Miroslav Klose. And it's basically a credit to his longevity. And then he's playing for one of consistently one of the best teams in the world. And there was a lack of alternatives. Definitely mm-hmm. at the 2014 World Cup, Miroslav Klose was the only actual number nine striker type guy. If they didn't play Klose, then they were playing like Thomas Muller in an almost false nine type situation. Or Mario Götze, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then even when they like would look to replace Klose or have somebody def- to deputize in his absence, it was usually Mario Gomez who does yes. the exact same thing. Yeah, so yeah, there's really just not a lot of alternatives. So Miroslav Klose just kept getting picked even when mm-hmm. he was an older player. He also genuinely was a good player, right? Yeah. He was big. I think he was at least six foot. He was fast um, in his younger days. He was strong. I remember him being a good like target man and a good hold-up player. So he, he was useful to a team, right? A lot of knockdowns and layoffs. He was also, I remember him being great at making fast little movements to get free. Right, she's like a premium Chris Wondolowski. <laughs> Fast little movements to get free and yeah. finish. He's a very, very useful centre forward. But I also do accept Carter's idea that Miroslav Klose is not like a Ronaldo all-star, all-time player. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I think that that is... I think this makes sense. Uh, if not, forgive me and I'll try again. But basically it's like, I think he is he was never going to be that glamorous striker. And sort of almost in my mind, like paves the way for Robert Lewandowski to do a lot of what Klose did really well. The same, except Lewandowski has a, a bit more variety to his game. Whereas I think Klose, maybe it's just content to like stay up top. He's only going to get service every now and then, but when he does, he'll get goals. And that's why I think, yes, he has the time with Bayern that he has. But then there's like Kaiserslautern and Werder Bremen and Lazio what clubs who maybe aren't going to spend the money to bring in a superstar but are going to bring him in to fit their system and I think that is a big part of what he does is you sort of know what you're going to get from him in some ways I equate him though he is not nearly as big or as famous like I equate him with Zlatan where he knows how to make runs he knows how to get into positions to score goals and he's going to demand good good service from people who are playing those crosses in and I think he's going to capitalize upon them and I think that intelligence combined with that technical ability is what made him that next level forward for Germany. So if we explain, if Carter's listening, have mm-hmm. we explained how Miroslav Klose is the men's World Cup all-time leading goal scorer? The only thing we might not have really explained is like, not necessarily why, but sort of like when you think of Germany, I think you think of like a lot of technical fast playing, like possess, possess, possess. And then like after 15 passes, there's a goal. And Miroslav Klose like a bit more if you're just looking at him at surface level it's like oh yeah he's really good in the air he scores a bunch of headers but this day and age we don't think a lot of like crossing being the most effective efficient way to score so why was it that he was sort of in this position to score as many goals from that literal position with germany i mean i think it was that germany didn't really play that way until 2014 right Fair. they didn't have the like because <laughs> they were almost like a guardiola yeah. team in 2014 yeah. right because yeah. they had his influence via Bayern Munich before that there were more crosses like I want to mm-hmm. say in at least one of these World Cups where he scores five goals like all of them are headers I think mm-hmm. the 2002 World Cup maybe because I remember there were three headers against Saudi Arabia he scored a hat-trick against Saudi yeah. Arabia with his head he's maybe scored all five goals with his head so I think Germany yeah, I, just again. were more of a crossing team in the past I saw, I saw, I think three goals with his feet and two of those were sort of like tap-ins from a foot out yeah. so yeah I think that makes sense then so there, I think I think that's it then, right? Longevity, yeah. um, consistency, and then playing for Germany at World Cups and being uh, there weren't that many other options to, to play as a big target forward for Germany. Yep. And he played in an era where Germany kind of played with that style 
until 2014 when they didn't, but he was still the option that um, whenever they needed a striker, he was the guy, right? Worth remembering yeah. that, that destruction of Brazil when they um, win 7-1, Germany win 7-1, closer starts that game because I mm-hmm. think it made sense to um, to Yogi Love that they needed a big striker yeah. and closer scores the second goal in that game, right? As part of the 7-1 win. So he yep. was still very, very useful to Germany um, even in 2014. Uh, yes, he was. And my final note that uh, you jog my memory there, it, it's maybe a point we've already made, but I just wanted to drive home one more time. I mean, he retires at like 38, I yeah. think, maybe 37. And so to your point, this is this is the other aspect of the Zlatan comparison that I failed to make is that, yes, like he did have some pace. Obviously, he's not super slow, but his game was never about being the fastest and the most technical on the ball. So you can sort of rely on him to just do the same thing. And, you know, yeah, he can go in there and do it for in, in 2002 or 2006 or 2010 or whenever it might be. He'll be able to kind of do the same job and you can build around that and that consistency definitely elevates so there we go Miroslav Klose all-time leading goal scorer better footballer than Ronaldo (laughs) that made me uncomfortable I'll say this he was a less injured footballer than Ronaldo right if Ronaldo was fully fit for the number of World Cups that Ronaldo played in maybe he scores more World Cup goals you got some points you got some points I do got some points Um, all right Taylor We've answered all the questions. Oh, we um, have. If, if listeners have questions they'd like to ask us, um, it's totalsoccershow.com slash questions. You can find it on our website. It's also in our Twitter bio. You can click on it and there's a form to fill out and ask us a question. We always want questions to answer. But soon, we'll always want games to review. There are lots yeah. of games coming up for us to review. Oh boy. We, we haven't mentioned, Taylor, MLS is back. Because MLS is back. MLS is back. That's what they've named the tournament. They did the draw this morning. We've not covered it on today's show because there's going to be an episode of Allocation Disorder publishing on, on Friday with uh, Sam Stejkal. Um, Paul Tenorio is off this week, but Sam Stejkal will have a guest and they will get deep into MLS is back, what the tournament's going to look like in Orlando. There we are. I'm excited for that. I'm excited for us to get back to our usual summer ways of never sleeping and only watching soccer and then talking about soccer. Oh, yeah. Lots of lots of Premier League. Again, starting uh, next Wednesday, June 17th, right? It's Sheffield United Villa and it's Man City Arsenal. I definitely didn't get the home teams right. I just guessed. But it's definitely those four teams playing uh, we next go. Wednesday when the Premier League comes back. And remember, you can watch on NBC Sports Network via Fubo. It's fubo.tv slash TSS to get your seven day free trial and just as an example if you start it on that day you get seven days of free premier league yeah exactly and then if you're feeling anxious about all the games you have to watch then maybe uh sunday scaries could help you in that way so you've got the kind of both options covered right there there we go on those bonus ad reads i will say taylor rockwell thank you for taking the time to talk to me today right back at you buddy listeners thank you for listening we will talk to you again tomorrow 